Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast. Today, Jack and I are going to discuss the rising bar for active management and why alpha generation has the potential to be much harder in the future. I hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, you wrote this uh, interesting piece on the rising bar of active uh, management. And one of the things that we obviously do here at Validia is we try to find managers, individuals that have proven long-term track records of success. And like you kind of said in the article, um, that's, that's few and far between. But I think this is, can kind of create an interesting discussion how things have changed over the years with active management and how even much more difficult it is now with the proliferation of factor-based strategies and other quantitative methods. So if you want to maybe give us an intro of what you were really trying to um, uncover here, and then we can get into some of the specifics um, in the article itself. Yeah, you know, as an active manager, your, your bar you're trying to cross has always been the S&P 500, uh, you know, for many years. And, you know, as, as I said in the article, most managers, you know, something like 80 or 90 percent long term, depending on what you look at, have failed to be able to cross that bar. So after their fees, they failed to outperform the S&P 500. So for a very long time, that was your goal, you know, as, as an active manager was to beat the S&P 500. But one of the things that academic research has shown is there were ways you could do that using factors. And so, for instance, if you had a value tilt to your portfolio or if you bought value stocks, you know, and you held them through the ups and downs, you could beat the S&P 500 over the long term. If you used momentum, you could beat the S&P 500 over the long term. So these were factors, you know, that have been discovered by academics that allow you to basically generate an excess return over the S&P 500. And so what I'm talking about in the article is the fact that those factors have now been discovered and those factors are now widely available well, that raises the bar for anybody in the active management industry. So, for instance, now, if I, if I want to use a simple exposure to value, I can go find something from BlackRock, something from Vanguard that gets me that exposure for maybe, say, 10 basis points. Mm-hmm. So now, as an, as an active manager, just buying cheap stocks and using a simple exposure to value is not going to work for me anymore because I'm not going to be able to justify you know, my 1% fee or my 80 basis point fee or whatever it is based on doing something that, you know, you can now get from Vanguard for 10 basis points. And so that's what I was getting at in the article is, you know, now it's it's more difficult to be an active manager because not only do you have to beat the S&P 500, but you have to beat these new these factors that have been discovered and are now widely available and cheap. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I don't know if a lot of investors really benchmark to those yet. I mean, they're really still looking at the S&P. So I think that the S&P has been a very hard index to beat over the last 10 years. Um, and we know value is underperformed, but, you know, I think that you're right that a lot of these factor strategies now can be bought for a lot cheaper than they could maybe even 10 years ago. And that creates a whole new set of hurdles, I think, for active managers. Yeah. And, you know, and I think you're right about, I think, you know, having a separate money management business ourselves, I mean, everybody benchmarks to the S&P these days, you know, just like they always have, you know, they, they want to see how you're doing against the S&P. But the, the point I was making is, you know, if you're generating an excess return over the S&P and you're doing it just by picking simple value stocks, you know, a diversified basket of simple value stocks, well, 
you're not adding value relative to what's easily available out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe at the end of the day for a period of time you can do that, but eventually, you know, people understand that, you know, I, I can get this simple value exposure from Vanguard, I can get it from BlackRock. You know, so as an active manager, you have to do something beyond that now. You have to, you know, add some more value in some other way. You know, that could be adding things to your factor strategy that, you know, are not widely available or it could be something else. But you just have to do something to sort of exceed value as a whole. Right. And actually, no, value is not the greatest example right now because obviously value has been struggling. So well, yeah, you're investing in, your, in value, you're underperforming the S&P 500 anyway. Yeah. In, but, in the article, like you gave the example of the iShares, this iShares Edge MSC USA Momentum Factor ETF, you know, which has crushed the market basically over the last, what, since 2013. And, you know, that charges like 15 basis points. So here's a good example of something that has, you know, dramatically outperformed the S&P. It's basically using a proven factor like momentum. And you're getting it for, you know, um, pennies on the dollar, basically. Right. And that's, that was a good example in the article, because if, if you are a momentum manager, you know, if you if that chart was not the iShares momentum, you know, index, if, if that chart was actually an active manager using momentum and you looked at that chart against the S&P 500, you'd say this guy has got a lot of skill. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that that fund is available for 15 basis points. And so. You know, if you produce those returns and you charge 70 or 80 basis points, well, you really haven't added any value relative to momentum as a whole. And, and that's what I was getting at in the article is, you know, in the past, that type of outperformance, you know, where there weren't factor funds widely available, that that type of outperformance, you know, was alpha. That that type of outperformance would have attracted a lot of capital. You know, today it's a different it's a different story. The bar is higher than it used to be. Well, and that that brings up and goes into the AQR superstar investor studies that, study that you and I and report that you and I have actually talked about quite extensively, and that was the topic of a recent conversation on Twitter. And basically, what that what that report is is uh, doing, and AQR was the firm that did the research behind, it, is they looked at the uh, performance of some of these great investors, so Buffett, Lynch, Bill Gross, and George Soros. And then what they tried to do is they looked at their returns and then they broke out how much of their returns were due to value or how much were due to low volatility or how much were due to some degree of leverage. And what they sort of showed is that once you, everyone except for Lynch, you know, you could, you could get most of that return through exposure to some type of uh, factor, whether it be value, low volatility, or um, size, or whatever it was. So they were like trying to, you know, break out the returns of someone like Buffett and say how much of it has come from, you know, exposure to certain factors. We know that they're, the devil's in the details. It's not that easy. That's another thing that you and I have uh, talked about. Maybe we'll talk about it here. But it is to the your point that, you know, a lot of these great um, investors, you know, their performance can be tied back to having some type of um, factor exposure. That's right. You know, if you look at other successful, you know, let's use value as an example. You look at other successful value investors, you'll find the same thing. You know, if you go back 30 years and look at their track record, a lot of their track record was just the value factor in general. But also, and this, this is sort of what came up in the d- debate on Twitter, you know, that's not fair to those investors. And the reason it's not fair is because if I go back 30 years, I couldn't get 15 basis point exposure, you know, widely available exposure to value. So back then doing the same thing was alpha because there was no other way to get that exposure inexpensively. Now it's not. 
because now I can get that value exposure inexpensively. And so it's not fair, and AQR mentioned this in the paper, by the way, it's, it's not fair to go back and say, you know, I'm going to take away from Buffett's track record because I can use these simple factor exposures because there was no way to get those simple factor exposures inexpensively back then. But now there is. And so now the bar for somebody today is a lot higher than it was for somebody like Buffett. So let me ask you this. If those factor exposures are so easy to invest in now, I mean, is there a chance they may not work? I mean, it kind of makes sense. They they maybe worked in the past because they weren't really easy to get, you know, to get that exposure. Um, but now we're basically saying it's super easy to get momentum. It's super easy to get value. So, you know, does it make sense that those factors are still going to produce the premium in the future that they've produced in the past? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think it makes an argument definitely for reduced premium. I, I do think they're still going to work. And I think th there's reasons, you know, behavioral and risk-based reasons why, why they're going to continue to work. But I do think it makes an argument that, you know, now that these are widely known, you may not see, you know, if you look at a factor like value and maybe you saw a 3 to 5% excess return historically, you may see a 2 or 3% excess return, um, you know, now. So I do think it makes a case for, you know, maybe they'll be less effective than mm -hmm. they were in the past, but I, I do think they're still going to work. And, you know, also it's important to understand part of the reason these factors work is because you can go through really long periods where they don't. And so, you know, if you're sitting as a value investor right now, you understand exactly what that means. We've gone through a huge period where value is underperformed. And so part of it, of, of why these factor works is the pain of going through that period. And, you know, many investors are going to bail on the strategies during that period. And, you know, that, that's in part what allows them to continue working. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, um, you know, the way that we express these factors is through the strategies of great investors that we run quantitatively and other strategies that have been proven over time. Um, and this is something we talked about on a, re a recent podcast, but, you know, we're not we're not buying the broader market with our investing system. You know, we tend to be much more concentrated with our portfolios. So I think with that comes more risk and with that comes more you know potential, I think, for um, outperformance over time. But it, it doesn't always translate into that. But there's different you know, there's different there's a different spectrum of how you can express these factors in a portfolio. And I think what your article is mostly talking about is these, you know, smart beta type of um, investment strategies versus, you know, highly concentrated uh, strategies or portfolios that give you, you know, ultra, ultra deep uh, value exposure or, or exposures, not just value, value, momentum, whatever it might be. That's right. And, that, and that's one way an active manager, and you, you see some out there that do this, you know, th that's one way an active manager can add value above and beyond, say, the the, fifth, the 10 basis point Vanguard value fund is, mm -hmm. you know, concentration gets you more exposure to the value factor. It gets you a rougher ride, but it gets you more exposure to the value factor. And so more exposure to the value factor gets you more excess return, at least if, if history is any guide. And so that, that's one way you can do it. You know, another way you can do it is you can find criteria to couple with the value criteria. You can find your own strategy, you know, that enhances the returns of the value factor over time or momentum or whatever it is you're doing. So there, there's definitely ways to do it. The, the point of the article was it's just more difficult than it was before. And, you know, this is also something that, you know, we may look back. So, for instance, let, let's say you and I discover a factor today. I mean, that's not very likely to happen. But uh, let, let's say you and I are uh, the smartest guys out there and we... It's called the Jack and, and we, Justin factor. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's say we discover that factor today. Let's say we're able to use that factor for the next 10 years. 
um, where nobody else figures it out. We're able to use it and produce excess return over the next 10 years. You know, we that is alpha. We, we've been able to find something that nobody else has, and we've been able to use it for an extended period. Now, let's say 10 years from now, somebody discovers or figures out our factor. It becomes widely available. An academic paper comes out. Well, now that using that factor going forward, if that becomes widely available and cheap, you know, for people to access, it no longer is alpha. And and that was sort of the point of the paper is, mm. you know, anything, any of this, you know, anything that's widely available and inexpensive for investors to access that produces excess return eventually does not, you know, does not become alpha anymore. It becomes something that becomes commoditized. And then it's, it's the job of managers to find something else and, and, you know, find something to, you know, to justify the fee that they're charging. Right. But like you said, it's a, you know, what happens is these things stop working and then you get investors fleeing those things. And ultimately, I think that's a big part of why a factor may continue to work. Um, so that's just an interesting, but I think your point is a good one. And it's an interesting thing to think about that these these factors do get, they have been commoditized and you can basically almost get them for free at this point. There's two other things I just wanted to ask you since we're on this topic. We're going to pivot a little bit, but you mentioned this in the art in the beginning of your article, which is, and I think it's a, it's a concept worth discussing. Um, and a lot of investors know this, but that, you know, when you take the aggregate, all of the managers in the market, how collectively they can't beat the market because of fees. And I just think that's an interesting, it's, that's something that a lot of investors know, but it, it doesn't really get discussed a lot. And I think it might've been Bill Sharp, who was the one uh, that developed this concept. I don't know the exact name of it, but that, you know, like all the active managers in, in the market, they have to be, they have to underperform the market because they are the market. And then, you know, their fees are netted out. So is that something you just want to explain that a little bit? I think it's worth worth talking about. Sure. So if, if you look at, let's let's assume the market is 50% index-based investments and 50% active managers. So we know the total of that as a whole is the market. So we know the mm -hmm. sum of the index plus the active managers has to be the market because that's all that's available. So if if the index is the market and the whole is the market, then what's left active manager as a whole also has to be the market. You know, it's a simple math thing. Right. And so that is gross of fees. So what that means is if, if active managers are the market gross of fees, then net of fees, active managers by definition have to underperform the market by the amount of their fees. Mm -hmm. So in aggregate, asset managers will always underperform the market by the amount of their fees. But within that, there will obviously be some people who outperform the market. There'll be some people that underperform the market. So it's it's not an indictment that asset management can't work. It's an indictment of asset management as a whole has to underperform by the amount of its fees. And I think the evidence shows that more and more managers are underperforming the market um, after fees over time. So it's it's the market's become harder to beat, you know, potentially due to some of the things we're discussing today. Um, there's more competition in the market than there was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. This is a point that Michael Mobison, who you've interviewed for your five questions um, column on Validia, um, you know, has written about and discussed. And one of the interesting things with what he has brought up and some of the evidence in terms of the number how much it's declined in terms of the the percentage of active managers being able to beat the market over the years is is pretty mind-blowing but you know one of the points that is 
at, at first I thought it was going to be the opposite way, but he's basically said that, you know, as more and more, um, as it becomes harder and harder to beat the market, it means that, you know, there's some of these managers will just go away. They won't survive. But the ones that do survive will be the ones that are able to beat the market. So the, even though you think on the surface, like managers going out of business or shutting funds down or shutting strategies down would be less competition, it actually is kind of flipped upside down in the sense that only those managers that are able to produce long-term alpha are the ones that are going to survive. So that's just an, a, another interesting sort of thing to think about. It's a, it's a dynamic that's going on in the industry. And, you know, Mobison's written um, a couple of different things on that. I don't know if you have any other opinions or feelings on that or anything, but. Yeah, no, no, that, that that's definitely true. You know, another thing Mobison's written about as well is, you know, the, the balance between the alpha that's available in fees. And so you mentioned it's getting harder to beat the market, but one of the other things that's happening is fees are compressing down. And so at some point there'll probably be an equilibrium that gets reached there, mm -hmm. you know, where the value that active managers are adding gets closer to the fees that they're charging. And so as less people can beat the market, if fees keep falling, you know, you're working your way towards an equilibrium where your, your active, active management will settle in, but settle in at a much lower price than it was, than it has been historically. And then you're seeing that process play out. Mm -hmm. Lots of interesting stuff. So, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's good. We'll put, what we'll do is we'll put um, a link to the article in the show notes. And um, hopefully you found this discussion uh, interesting and insightful. And um, we'll see you next time. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.